Today's passage is in Luke chapter 24, verse 1 through 9. Luke 24, 1 through 9. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, Suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, this morning we are going to be partaking together in communion. Uh, But before we do that, I want to share some thoughts with you on understanding grace. Now, when I say the word grace, what comes to your mind? Yep, some people think, oh, that's what we do before we eat a meal. We say grace. And then every once in a while, some smart aleck kid, it's his turn, he goes, grace. And, you know, it kind of ruins the whole deal. Uh, Some of you think of maybe a song that is played uh, at the funeral of firefighters or police officers, uh, early responders. Some of you might be thinking of a grace period. You know, that time between when a bill is, you know, due and the time you got to really pay it there. Some of you are thinking, oh, yeah, that's the name of my great aunt on my mother's side of the family, Grace, there. And all of these things are possible, but I want to talk to you today about God's amazing grace. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, probably a very famous passage of Scripture for most people, It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Our salvation, that which we celebrate in our communion this afternoon, is a gift of God's grace. Now, what does that mean, though? That's what we want to look at today. Well, what is this grace that saves us? And and when was this grace given to us? And and now, how do I respond to God's grace? So let's begin with what is grace? Uh, Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Many, many years ago, when I was uh, just a young uh, kid in camp, um, we had a a, um, Bible teacher that wanted to illustrate what grace is. And so, you know, at camp, you have the really, really good kids, you know, and then you have those that really kind of want to stretch the boundaries a little bit. And there was this one kid there, the particular week I was there, who um, just got in trouble all the time. He would talk when he wasn't supposed to talk. He wouldn't get in a straight line when he was supposed to get in a straight line. Uh, He was always getting in trouble. And so the camp speaker got up and he says, I have 
an award today to give to someone. And he called out this boy's name and asked the boy to come forward. And he gave him a candy bar. And he says, do you know what this is for? My kid said, no. He says, you're going to find out in a little bit. And then he went on and he talked about how grace is an undeserved gift from God. Perhaps you have seen the movie uh, Les Miserables, um, where a, a man gets paroled from prison. And the first thing he does is he goes to a church and he attempts to steal the silver candlesticks from the church. And he gets caught. But rather than being sent back to prison, the, the pastor of that church gives him the candlesticks, which he then invests into a, a thriving business uh, later on. He didn't deserve those candlesticks. In fact, he tried to steal them. What he deserved was to go back to prison. But the minister there wanted to give him grace, like God's grace. So what, what is God's grace? Well, God's grace comes from his unconditional love for us. Now, you might want to highlight or underline the word, if you're taking notes, unconditional love for us. Many people think that God kind of rates us on a sliding scale. Um, you know, on the merit system or brownie points, if you want, okay? Um, God gives us what we deserve, they say. Well, since we know that all, you know, we all know people that are worse than us, right? So, so we can figure, well, I can't be doing too badly uh, here. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think God owes me heaven because I'm not as bad as so-and-so over there. But that, that's not grace. Now, that would be like giving the candy bar to the best kid in camp rather than the worst. If that were how heaven was determined, then only the best could get to heaven. And there are always people better than us, too. Okay? We don't look at them. We just look at the ones we're better than, you know. So where would God draw the line? Um, I never liked classes where the teacher graded on a sliding scale. You know, I, I wanted an objective standard where I could know, you know, I was going to get a C. And, uh, you know, C's make degrees. I live by that, okay? Uh, you know, the sliding scale is okay if you're at the top of your class. But, you know, again, I want, a, I want an objective standard. So God says no, no merit plan for heaven. And that means this, all good people don't go to heaven. Some do, but not because they're good. So God decided to save us, which means, amongst other things, all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And we have the promise of heaven uh, when we die someday by his grace. It's an undeserved free gift from God. Now, most everyone likes free gifts if they're really free. You know, if there's no strings attached 
to them. You know, if you have to listen to a three-hour-long sales pitch on timeshares, whatever you got as a free gift wasn't free. Yeah. The most important thing that we could ever possess is a free gift. Eternal life is a free gift. Now, now some people, though, they just have a hard time with that concept that that God gives eternal life as a free gift. And and, I wonder, you know, why can't I add a few little works to grace? I'll let God do 90% 90 of of saving me, but, you know, I got to do 10% at least or 5% or some percent. Why can't we add works to grace? And the answer to that is works nullify grace. We find that over in Romans chapter 11, verse 6. It says, and since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. We, we can't mix works and grace for salvation. It's trying to like, you know, mix oil and water. It just doesn't work. Trying to add works to grace in anything that God wants to give us by his grace won't work. So everything God wants to give us by his grace, he does that for this one reason. And the one reason is this, to bring glory to himself. To bring glory to himself. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son, and forgave our sins. Did you notice all the things here it says that God does by his grace? Uh, let me just reiterate them for you. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm. Now, there's a whole sermon, okay, right there on that. It says, by his grace, he has united us with Christ. By his grace, he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. By grace, he adopted us into his own family. By grace, he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son. By grace, he forgave us our sins. Why? Why did he do all of these things by his grace? Well, it says 
so that we would praise God for his glorious grace. That's why he did it. In fact, that keeps me eternally secure because it's by his grace. If I did anything to add to grace to get myself saved, then there would be something God could use against me to take away my salvation. But, but, but because it's by his grace, he can never do that. Romans eleven twenty nine, For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. God can never withdraw that which he gives as a grace gift. God doesn't take back his gifts. They're all based on the grace of God. Now, a free gift does not incur any debt or obligation. Okay, a free gift does not incur any obligation. It does not incur any debt. Some people try to very subtly add works to grace. Are you familiar with the term backloading? And I'm not talking about moving dirt around, okay? Backloading. It is a sales technique that's dubious at best. And backloading says this. I'm going to give you a free gift. Here it is. Free gift. It's all yours. Take it. Okay. Now that you've taken it, okay, now there's a two-year contract, and now you're committed to this and that and the other thing. That's backloading. Let me illustrate it for you. Tom back there. Let's say he walks into church some Sunday, and he has this gorgeous tie on. Okay, just the greatest tie in the world. And I go up to Tom and I say, wow, Tom, I love that tie. I wish I had a tie like that. And Tom says, well, glad you noticed. This, this tie is a very expensive tie. He says, it is made from the purest silk from the Orient. And for thread in the tie, they used gold. Okay. This tie cost me three years worth of wages to buy this tie. And I go, wow. That is a fantastic tie. You know, I could never afford a tie like that. And so Tom says, you know what? And he reaches up and he takes off his tie and he hands it to me. I says, oh, no, no, I can never afford to buy that from you, Tom. I says, no, no, it's a free gift. I said, are you kidding me? You know, a free gift? You're going to give me your tie as a free gift, the most expensive thing you probably you own? You know, and Tom says, yeah, I am. And I say, okay, thank you, and I, I take the tie. And then Tom says, now, I'll expect you to come and mow my lawn every week during the summer and shovel snow in the winter, and don't forget, now you have to rake up the leaves. Okay, that's backloading. <laughs> Salvation is by grace alone, and it does not incur any debt or any obligation on our part. 
It's not like, here's a free gift. Now you got to do this and this and this and this and this. Now, God doesn't backload our salvation. Now, to be honest with you, there are some Christians who just cannot buy this concept. Okay? In fact, they refer to it by the derogative term as cheap grace. Okay? Cheap grace is grace that we're just saved by grace and we're under no obligation. We're not indebtedness to, to God for anything at all. And I say it's better than cheap grace. It's free grace. Okay? It, it's free to me because it cost the Son of God everything when he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. That price was paid full on the cross. Now, does that mean we're free to sin all we want? No. As a matter of fact, it's grace that teaches us not to sin. Over in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It. What's it? It. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It is, if I live a godly life, it's not because I owe it, or, or somehow uh, I have to pay back God. There's some obligation there. No, it's because the grace of God is at work in my life. You see, what the law could not do, Grace does abundantly. Now, when was this grace given? Well, it was given in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. John 3.16. I bet we could probably all quote it by heart, but we all have different translations of the Bible, so we probably memorized it differently. I'm going to go back to my old standard. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Because God the Father loved us so much, he sent his Son to earth. The very Son of God that, that the Bible says created everything that's ever existed now became a part of his creation. And God gave up the splendor of heaven to become a man. And he suffered the same things that you and I suffer. He laughed. He cried. He hurt. He loved. All the things that we do, he did. But he did something we could never do. And that is, we could never pay the penalty for our sins. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The verse means that <clears throat> the righteousness of Jesus on the cross, the, the, the righteous Jesus himself took our sins and, and then he gave us his righteousness. Some people define righteousness you know, and justif justification. I've heard people say, well, justification is just as if we'd never sinned. But it's more than that. Not only did he take our sins, but he gave us his righteousness. How do we know this is true? 
I mean, anyone can complain, can say they're God. They can claim to be God. Anyone can say that, that they're dying for the sins of the world. Anyone can say anything, but, you know, my folks were from Missouri. I need proof. It's a show-me state, you know. It had to be convincing. The proof that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could have salvation by grace alone. It had to be absolutely convincing. It had to be something that nobody else in the history of the world has ever done. And he did that when he rose from the dead. Fred read the passage from Luke 24, 1 through 9, where it says that a few people saw Jesus and, and saw that he was alive. But, but I want more proof than the few people. So, so what other proof is there? In Luke 24, uh, going on verse 36 through 40, it says Jesus uh, showed himself. He says, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit or a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do your doubts arise in your hearts? See my hand and my feet. That is I myself. Touch me and see, for the spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then he said this. He showed them his hands and his feet. So the disciples in the upper room, we had more witnesses. But I want more proof than just a handful of witnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. He appeared to over 500. You know what people who, who, who doubt the resurrection say about this? They had a mass hallucination. Okay? All at the same time. All five. You see, all these people wanted to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And somehow or another, they put something in the loaves and the fishes or something. And everybody had this mass hallucination. And they thought they saw Jesus because they wanted to. Well, there's one man who doesn't fit that category. One man who the last thing in the world he ever wanted to see was a resurrected Jesus Christ. And that was the leader of those who were persecuting and killing Christians. Saul of Tarsus. In 1 Corinthians 15, 8, it says, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Saul of Tarsus did not want to believe in the resurrected Jesus. It was no hallucination. The Bible and secular history tells us of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And, and he did all of this 
for us by his grace because of his unconditional love for you and for me. He did this to give us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And he really, that's what communion is really all about. Communion acknowledges that God loves us and that Jesus died for us and he proved what he said by raising from the dead. So now how do I respond to this? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. It says here, our part in that is to believe God. That's what faith is. Faith is believing God. You know what? That is so easy, it's hard. Because we want to do something. Okay, Uh, we've been told there's no free lunch out there. But the truth is the price has been paid fully by Jesus on the cross. And now all we have to do is believe. And there's no, uh, nothing added to the end. No indebtedness. No obligation. In John chapter 1 verse 12 says, but as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Believing, believing what? Well, believing in the name of Jesus means to believe all that he said, all that he claimed, and what he claimed was to be the son of God. He claimed that he would die for the sins of the world and he would rise from the dead. So the question this morning is, do you believe that? If so, you have eternal life that can never be taken away from you, that incurs no obligation or no debt. Why should you believe it? Well, eternity depends upon it. Eternity depends upon it. All over the world, when people celebrate communion, we are acknowledging the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the resurrection of, is God's stamp of approval upon all that Jesus did and all that he said. This is God's greatest demonstration of his amazing grace. So I have some questions for you this morning. Number one, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation? for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you received his amazing grace? Are you continuing to live in his amazing grace? And if not, why not right now? God knows your heart. He knows what you're thinking. And all you have to do is in your heart just whisper a prayer and says, God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I am receiving your free gift of eternal life through Jesus. That's what communion is all about. That's why we have gathered here together to celebrate. We're going to sing a song, and then we're going to participate in the communion and then sing another song. And last uh, 
Last time we did communion, one person prayed to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then they partook in their first communion. Is today your day to receive God's free gift of eternal life and participate in communion as a child of God? Pastor John.